welcome to Nerds at Church, a podcast about nerdery and the Bible. I'm Pastor Kay, and I use pronouns like she and her. And I'm Pastor Emily, and my pronouns are they, them, theirs. In this episode, we'll discuss Reformation, which this year and every year falls on October 31st, though you may in your congregation commemorate it on Sunday, October 30th. Or you may not commemorate it at all, because not everyone does. Right. We are not in my congregation, except for the music or something. We have a couple content notifications for this episode. We talk about anti-Semitism in both the deep dive and the gospel, and we talk about queer phobia in the deep dive. Check out the episode description for links to the Bible passages and other references we make in this episode. For our deep dive for Reformation this year, since we had... Queer Lutheran Reformation scholar Pace Warfield May on last year, we decided to do some lesser known Reformation impacts and talk about some of the other stuff that happened in the Reformation that we don't really talk about as much. Yes, because it's good to not sweep everything under the rug. If we get all this stuff out and actually talk about it, maybe we can avoid doing it again in the future. That would be nice. What? No way. So one thing that we did briefly bring up last year as a side effect of the Reformation, although not just the Reformation, there was a lot going on then, was the German Peasants' War, also sometimes referred to as the Peasants' Revolt. But if you want to Google it, do the German Peasants' War, because there's a whole bunch of Peasants' Revolts, as you might imagine. But this one in particular was between 1524 and 1525. Yes, not that peasants are revolting, you know, personally, but rather that peasants would, of course, have plenty of reasons to revolt. Yeah. So the German Peasants' War was made up mostly of peasants and farmers and some Anabaptist clergy that also took a hand in it. But they didn't really have like one centralized leadership. And overall, the whole thing was kind of disorganized, particularly in comparison to, say, the you know trained military troops that were being sent against them. I was going to say, it's not like they had control of all of the means of communication and all of that stuff. Right. And they didn't have military training. In fact, most of them didn't really know how to, you know, use a weapon aside from their farming implements. So the fact that they were able to, you know, make any kind of impact at all is actually kind of extraordinary. There were a lot of different causes leading up to the revolt in the first place, such as the fact that labor shortages from the previous century, which I'm guessing is a way to, you know, gently refer to the Black Plague. But those labor shortages had allowed some peasants to accrue some actual wealth, and they wanted the rights to go along with that wealth. Also, there was a growing discontent with the concept of serfdom in general, and a growing merchant and artisan class emerging in the cities, as well as then the Reformation through a wrench in the whole ancient Christian concept of hierarchy and divine right of rule. So all of that probably contributed. Scholars still disagree on which causes were more or less important depending on who you're talking about. Uh, But a foundational document of what the peasants were trying to achieve is called the 12 Articles. Unfortunately, there are also a lot of things called the 12 Articles. So to be clear, the one you want, if you're trying to look this up, is from March 20th, 1525, which is, I guess, the final version or the official version. And those are a list of essentially the demands of this particular large group of peasants, which generally do cover the demands of most of the groups that were rebelling at the time. And the issues included wanting to be able to choose their own clergy and also being able to depose them if necessary, using some of the tithes of the church uh, that were collected to help the poor. That's almost like biblical. 
Yeah, I know. You, you'd never imagine. The abolition of serfdom across the board. Restriction of excessive rents and taxes. We could use some revolting day. Yeah, no, these are not terrible things. It excessive sounded like they rents. wanted a general rule for like what would an excessive rent or tax be so that they could be removed on a general basis instead of having everybody getting to do whatever they want as long as they're noble. And then also stopping the nobility from being able to restrict the rights and privileges of individual peasants in their domain. Like if you're going to have rules about what privileges various people have, it has to be general and not specific to that person because you don't like that person. And then just a standardization mm -hmm. in general of law and punishments in order to remove what is now often <laughs> called arbitrary justice, which is to say, you know, he had some bad squash last night and he's in a terrible mood. And so he's going to be a lot meaner about what he calls justice today, as opposed to what he called justice last week after he had a really nice dinner the night before. So huh. it's almost like that is a concern nowadays. with Yeah, I know. Like punishment. This is remarkably hmm. uh, the same thing we're still fighting for. Yeah. Absolutely. There were some battles in this war, not maybe as many as you'd expect, and those were generally lost by the peasants because, again, no military training and going up against trained military. But there were also some cases where groups of peasants captured groups of nobles and just, like, murdered them. Like, on the one hand, given what they were going through, it's hard to blame them. On the other hand, definitely still murder. So, yeah. That, that was not great. After those stories started coming out, Martin Luther was vocally against the war and against the peasants who started it, and he wrote a pamphlet, which, man, he was good at titling pamphlets, called Against mm -hmm. the Murderous Thieving Hordes of Peasants, which gives you an idea of what his point of view was, and he very much encouraged the nobles to put this rebellion down as soon as possible, and it was indeed put down very violently by the aristocracy, and we don't actually know how many people died in that process. Somewhere between 100 and 300,000 is the idea. Very few, if any, of those goals were ever actually achieved in general. But this was definitely the largest uprising of the common people until the French Revolution in Western history. Wow. So, yeah, a big thing. And yet, you know, it's amazing how we don't tend to talk about what the goals that they were trying to get were very often. Yeah, I remember learning about it in seminary and learning about Martin Luther being against it. But that was like, it didn't really get yeah, all of I, this in the like, oh, these are exactly the same. Like, these are not exactly the same, but these are a lot of what we are still struggling with. Right. And yeah. I think the general idea at my seminary was that he was against the concept of violence in general, whereas it kind of sounds like he was encouraging the nobles to, you know, murder Be back. Violent. And so yeah. maybe that's not actually how that went. Yeah. Yeah. Murder bad. Yes, murder definitely still there. Still, still our position as a podcast. As controversial as that might be as a podcast, we are in fact taking that position. Yes. And the violence against peasants was not the only thing that came from the Reformation. Yeah. And there was a lot of fighting as well as princes decided if they were where their allegiance was going to lie. And so they would fight amongst each other too in the coming years because of the reformation but luther also was an anti-semite so yeah. there's a lot of misinformation about luther and anti-semitism that i learned in seminary i learned he was mostly fine until he was getting really old and then he got cranky progressively more grouchy because of all of his digestive issues i think was the general thrust that i was given yeah yeah 
And Martin Luther is not Oscar the Grouch in the things right. that he says about Jewish people. Oscar the Grouch would be horrified by this stuff. Yeah, for sure. Luther thought that Jewish people would convert to Christianity if they just heard the gospel right, right? If they just like were given a chance and not like harmed and they could just like hear what the gospel was and learn about it, then they would come around to Christianity and see the error of their ways. Yeah. This is problematic. Mm -hmm. This is bad. The general theme of, you know, if you're trying to evangelize someone, don't threaten them or be violent towards them. I'm, I'm on board with that, but like that doesn't mean they're going to agree with you. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Just like yeah. if you're asking someone on a date, not threatening them or being violent towards them, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that you, they're going to say yes. Exactly. It's not rocket science. Exactly. And then for folks who say, oh, it was just because he was old and had persistent digestive problems, right? The first mention of Jewish people by Luther is in a 1514 letter to George Spalatin. And Luther says, conversion of the Jews will be the work of God alone operating from within and not of man working or rather playing from without. If these offenses be taken away, worse will follow, for they are thus given over by the wrath of God to reprobation, that they may become incorrigible. And it continues. So this, right, this is the first mention we have of Jewish people by Luther. And he is talking about their conversion. He is talking about them being incorrigible and being given over by the wrath of God. It is not positive towards Jewish yeah. people. It is still harmful towards Jewish people, even if it's not out and out, please kill them kind of thing. Yeah. And from there, it just gets worse. The one that people are most likely to actually acknowledge in terms of Luther's thoughts and writings on Jewish people is a 1543 tract that once again, as Kay mentioned for the Peasants' Revolt, you can tell from the title what Martin Luther thinks. The title is on the Jews and their lies. So that was the one that people say Martin Luther was just cranky. That one is really harmful towards Jewish people and caused violence and death yeah. to the extent that when I was in high school in my AP world class, we would occasionally do debates about some historical something. And mm -hmm. I ended up debating a Missouri Synod kid. I didn't know he was Missouri Synod until much later, but sure. I knew he was went to the other Lutheran church. And we were debating whether or not Martin Luther's words led to the Holocaust and supported the Holocaust. And yeah. there was an interesting, like, high schoolers don't want to admit that Martin Luther could have, to, like, they don't, none of us want that to be true. And, but yeah. as I argued, it was. The Martin Luther's writings were used by Hitler and the Nazis during the Holocaust as justification. The vast majority of Lutheran churches towed the Nazi party line. Yeah. Lutherans have a horrible track record when it comes to respect and just respect and like not being violent towards Jewish people. And there's a lot to atone for that. And it takes more than, you know, the apology that the ELCA did a while back. Um, yeah, we have not done a lot on the whole. Yeah, so I read a quote from Martin Luther 
please do not take that out of context and say that is what we believe. That is not what we believe on this podcast. We work really hard to make sure that we are understanding Judaism within its context and Jewish people as beloved of God. That's also not what we believe as members of the denomination that we work for. The denomination that we work for is trying to get better at working against anti-Semitism and is not perfect, but also definitely rejects Martin Luther's writings on Jewish people. Yes. Like the LCA has stated very explicitly, anti-Semitism is bad. We're just trying to figure out how repair actually happens in meaningful ways and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking Uh, of people that get screwed over by the church. (laughs) Yes. Did the Reformation (laughs) screw over women? Well, yes, and also maybe a little bit no, but mostly yes. The real issue with the state of women during and after the Reformation was that the Reformation took away the option of becoming a nun from women and therefore avoiding the life of a wife and mother. Before the Reformation or in Catholic areas afterwards, you had the option if you did not want to become a wife and mother that you could go become a nun, you'd receive a certain amount of education, your life would not be, you know, super wealthy or luxurious, probably in at least most convents, but you would not have to run the gauntlet of being pregnant and very likely dying in childbirth at some point. So they didn't have the independence there. The emphasis was put back on family structures and women as a part of the family. And really, you just you didn't have any other options as a woman. Now, in regards to education, the general encouraging of commoners to read and study the Bible definitely encouraged overall literacy rates among Mm -hmm. ordinary people and probably that by and large also improved the general education of women. But the higher education Mm -hmm. that had been available to nuns in particular was now no longer an option for any women aside from like maybe some noble women whose fathers or husbands allowed it. And so Overall, the general education was raised, but the specific education was lowered. So it's kind of like you went from most people not being able to read, but a few people being very well educated to most people being able to read and like practically no one being very well educated Mm -hmm. among women. And I honestly had not heard about this part until I was doing a little research for this episode, but apparently there was a brief stage during the Reformation where while they were going through the list of, well, we can throw out that rule, we can throw out that rule, let's keep this one, we'll throw out that rule, there was some conversation about whether polygamy as practiced in the Bible would be okay in the new Reformed Church. While that was going on, Martin Luther gave Philip I, who was an early ruler of Germany, permission to commit bigamy as an alternative to divorce uh, because he basically had a mistress. He was not giving up his mistress and he wanted to give the children that he was going to be having with this mistress some legitimacy. And Martin Luther said, well, you're clearly not going to, you know, just go back to your wife like you should. And therefore, Philip wound up having 10 children with his first wife, who was a noblewoman. And those were the ones who were his legal heirs, essentially. And then also nine children with his second wife who was a commoner both women were alive at the same time they had children during overlapping years for several years there and there's also a note that apparently the noble wife essentially gave permission to philip to do this with her blessing because he was her sovereign because he was the ruler of where she lived which is 
slightly horrifying and also probably not something she actually had a lot of choice in. I was so. going to say, that does not sound like actually yeah. giving, like, that does not sound like consent. Consent. As we might yeah. think of it for, like, polyamorous relationships and ethical right. non-monogamy. But there is a lot of biblical basis for non-monogamy. There's actually very little biblical basis for monogamy. but There's very little biblical basis for how we, you know, run romantic and sexual relationships at all these days because they thought of them so wildly differently back then. It's uh, true. It's true. And this is just basically not a sterling case that should be taken as a good example of anything and apparently also was a was a stain on the reformation in general for a long time until i guess they stopped teaching people about it because i think about it and i think about the epistle that talks about like really you should abstain from like sexual relations of any kind but if you cannot then I guess marriage is okay. And this feels like the same thing, but instead you should stay in just marriage if at all possible. But if you just cannot, then I guess bigamy is okay. Yeah, I also keep in mind that, I mean, it's not like either of the women were his equal partners. It's and true. the second wife was definitely not anywhere near an equal partner. Um, they, yeah. they had what was called a morganatic marriage, uh, which is to say a noble person married a not noble person. And that meant that the children couldn't be, they, they could receive like small inheritances, but they couldn't inherit anything like from the family, uh, that mm. kind of thing. So yeah, that. It sounds like it was all kind of a mess. But also mm -hmm. there were women who were actively part of the Reformation and reformers themselves, like Argela von Grimm, Katharina Schultzel, and Katharina von Bora Luther, of course. And I hope I didn't butcher any of their names too badly. Mm -hmm. And also several other women. And we have a uh, website where you can look into them more deeply that mm -hmm. we will link to in the show notes. Yep, that has them and other reformers from the time of the reformation through to the present day so yep i did it for i don't know funsies the 500th anniversary of the reformation that's why i did sure. it and then there's also the impact of the reformation on lgbtqia plus people and our friend of the podcast and queer luther reformation scholar pace warfield may wrote a paper about this and so shared it with us but if you would like it you can contact Pace, which we've linked to Pace and had Pace on a million times. So definitely we'll reach out sure. if yeah. Definitely reach out if you're interested in the paper because from my skimming of it, it's quite fascinating. But part of what Pace talks about in the paper is that in in getting rid of monasteries and convents, as Kay mentioned, it was bad for women, but with that combined with Martin Luther's theology of the family and emphasis placed on having a family, getting married, producing children, it created a lot more societal pressure for queer people because queer people could be in monasteries and convents and have a reason to give for why they were single or why they weren't married with kids. Sure. And so this kind of took away those reasonings and those excuses from them. Also, Martin Luther used terms like sodomy and sodomite as a tool to discredit his opponents in a similar way that people say that's so gay is as an insult, right? That it's intended to be derogatory towards yeah. people because it's intended for those words to be negative. And then when in fact the sin of Sodom of course had nothing to do with consensual sex. Yes, as you can see in our 
episode where we did a deep dive on Sodom and Gomorrah this past summer, which we should link to in the episode description. In addition to those two kind of more obvious negative impacts on LGBTQI plus people, there's a complication in that, right? It's rarely ever that simple. So sodomy in terms of sexual activity was considered not just a sexual crime, but both a political and a religious crime. It was considered particularly dangerous, which is harmful for queer people, obviously. At the same time, friendships between two men, masculine friendships, were actually considered a noble relationship, and those were expressed with hand-holding or caresses or even kisses. And so there's this, like, a certain amount of affection and emotional and physical bonds is good, but only in this, like, one kind of acceptable format of that's where like bedfellows quote-unquote bedfellows is a term for men who are in relationship with each other yeah as a close male friendship and sometimes those also were connected with sex but not necessarily and when they were connected with sex there was a lot more ambiguity or a lot more hesitancy around it by this sounds like the reformation era version of gals being pals gal pals yeah 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 gal pals. Well, and that's like many of us in the queer community struggle when cisgender heterosexual women talk about their girlfriends, for example. Yeah. Because it's like, well, uh, I don't know who you're talking about. Like, what kind of girlfriend is this? Yeah. I've run into the phrase of just gals being pals as a reaction Mm. to people, you know, seeing a photo of women kissing or embracing or like one of them very clearly proposing to another woman and historians interpreting Mm. that in a platonic way. (laughs) I mean, that is like trans people and queer people have been systematically erased throughout history. So that makes sense. Yep. Our first reading for this episode is from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. The prophet Jeremiah announces the coming new covenant that God will make with the people when God will write God's word on their hearts and all will know God. So one of the themes in this passage is the idea of renewing commitment. God, through Jeremiah, is talking about renewing a commitment with the people of Israel. And I was thinking about it, the movie Encanto where Abuela has like made this initial commitment where she is doing and being everything for everyone. That is the role of the Amelia Madrigal. But commitments change and grow, just like people do. And so there is a point at which in the movie, like there's a recognition that, okay, this commitment, this relationship, this covenant needs to grow and change because it's not actually working the way we wanted it to. Yeah. Which I like that example. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And then in verse 31, we read, The days are surely coming, says the everlasting, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Spoilers, if you have not finished the first season of Ring of Rings of Power, you might want to like skip forward 30 seconds or so. But this part reminded me of when they change their plans and expectations so they have a teeny tiny bit of material that they are combining with other elements to make something and everybody is terrified that they're going to make a ring of power and then what ends up happening is they were going to make two rings and then they shift plans because of new information and I will do my best not to give away all of that stuff but and that's what becomes that same material instead of being two 
then becomes three because it is a stronger connection and less easily divided. And so the elves have three rings of power. Yeah, I look forward to watching that one of these days. And then in the second half of verse 32, we read, A covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. And this kind of goes back to a point that I make occasionally, which is that nine times out of ten, or even more often than that, when a divorce happens, the wedding vows have already been broken, and probably for a while, and sometimes visibly. And this includes, like at the start of the movie Unbreakable, when Bruce Willis's character, in the first scene we see him in, takes off his wedding ring to flirt with a girl on the train. And then, of course, it turns out that she's married too, and therefore she says she's not interested. But the covenant of marriage there is already broken, and his wife being interested in getting a divorce is not really a surprise so yeah that's i tell people that a divorce is more frequent is more like a funeral for a marriage or even the death certificate right yeah it's already dead it's already been broken it's already not what it was every so often you hear an example of divorce coming as a real surprise to one of the parties but often that also involves someone being fairly like unaware or so. that the person who was doing the breaking of marriage vows is the one surprising the other. Yeah, and was but, being secretive about it. Yeah. Yep. And then in the second half of verse 33, we read in this new covenant that God will make, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And I can't help but think when I hear about like writing something on their hearts and in the TV show once as in once upon a time with like fairy tale characters in the real world kind of thing Regina who is the evil queen is has this like collection of people's hearts and I can't really like you imagine yeah I yeah I can't really imagine her writing on them but she definitely like crushes them to kill people or whispers to them and then the people do what she whispers to them. So controlling their hearts. Some people know she has their hearts. Some people don't. Yeah. I, that also reminds me of a famous Stephen King quote. I have the heart of a small boy in a jar on my desk. Ooh. <laughs> he mm-hmm. was trying to make the point that he is not actually a warm, fuzzy person. Mm-hmm. And then in the first half of verse 34, we read, No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. And, you know, I figure this is probably not, but also I really hope it is not in a brainwashed hive mind way, as opposed to in a God makes God some more obvious kind of way. Mm-hmm. God does not generally strike me as wanting to turn us into the Borg overall. Or and the I, Cybermen, I would like to yeah. avoid that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let's avoid that. Agreed. And then our second reading for this episode is Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 28. Paul explains that all people will fall short of the expectations of the law and therefore are in need of God's grace given to all through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So one of the themes in this passage is the idea of being justified. This, however, is not like computer formatting. You're not right justified, left justified, center justified, block justified. (laughs) Yeah. That's all I got. (laughs) I I just was like, couldn't help it. Thankfully, we're not being spread thin by, yeah, justification. Yeah, I had Um, the Microsoft Word paperclip in like the corner of my eye while, well, in the corner of my imagination while thinking about that one. Yeah, I still remember getting very, very angry at Clippy. I'm so grateful that they (laughs) haven't doubled down on that. 
Um, I love Clippy. And that's delightful for you. Clippy would, like, do stuff. You could get it to, like, make different shapes out of itself and stuff. It's so fun. Oh, I think I'm remembering an earlier version of Clippy than you are. So in verse 20, we read, For no human being will be justified in God's sight by deeds prescribed by the law, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And, like, this also seems especially true because some of the laws are almost impossible to fully follow if you take them to their logical conclusion, like mm. Martin Luther did when he expanded on the commandments in the small catechism to the point where we're like, we're human. We are bound to break some of these rules eventually in mm -hmm. life. Seems about as likely that you will do that as it is likely that anyone living in the Red Queen's lands in Alice in Wonderland might be beheaded at any moment. Like they're, <laughs> There really is no way to go through life without risking that. So That is so true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Martin Luther took what was supposed to be like, here are some boundaries within which there's a very good chance that you can have like a healthy and life-giving community to live together. And then was like, and here's how we make it very, very specific and impossible to follow. This is why you need grace. Well, and I like the way that he expanded on them because, you know, honestly, when you really think about what it means to, to harm someone or to mm. betray your promises, yeah, his expansions all make sense. But also, like, we are, by definition, imperfect. So Yeah. And then in verse 21, we read, But now, irrespective of law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophet. So one of the things that I have found myself telling people frequently lately is, a reminder that when we read the law, what is being talked about, what is almost certainly being talked about is the Torah, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so I think it's interesting that it's like, but now, irrespective of the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets. So the Torah and the Nevi'im, which are two of the three books of the Tanakh, which are the Jewish scriptures. And so it's the combination of Torah and Nevim that lead to righteousness. And it reminded me of art talk. Art talk is one of my main TikTok areas. But there's a difference, right, between just doing art and doing art as a tutorial. Yeah. And those there are people who, like, just use the hashtags for both all the time. But I really like the spaces to navigate where I'm just watching someone do art and the spaces where someone is teaching me something about art and doing art and how to do art yeah. so there's like the righteousness being disclosed being taught attested to or just existing that's how i was yep. thinking about it i don't know if that actually makes sense now that i'm like thinking about it more but i think i get it okay it seems reasonable okay yeah and then in verse 24 we read they are now justified by god's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in christ jesus and you know sometimes gifts are important and sometimes they're important in a good way, like this one. And sometimes they're important in a bad way, like when Bilbo gave Frodo the one ring in Lord of the Rings. Like that, I think that can be, by definition, called a bad gift. Although, <laughs> you know, it, I guess it did work out well in the end, but I mean, still, the gift itself seems bad. Like, here's this ring that will corrupt you. Best of luck. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That was, you know, guided by Gandalf, but still. Yeah. And he was guided by Gandalf to, to make the gift, but that doesn't make it a good... I like Gandalf stuck around because it was a bad gift, right? Yeah, it's true. Yeah. yeah. And then in verse 27, we read, Then what becomes of boasting? It is excluded 
By what law? By that of works? No, but by the law of faith. So no boasting because it no longer makes sense to boast because everything comes from God is what I got out of that. And I was like, well, I guess Maui's out. There's really like no space for Maui in that one from Moana. Unless, of course, we're talking about humble brag, right? We're like, <laughs> you shift it so it's what God has done for us and through us and in us. And then like, yeah, bury that eel. Sprout the tree, yeah. make coconuts. I'm here for it. Yeah, like I also, you know, you're not really supposed to like Maui all that much in that movie. Like there's a certain grudging enjoyment of him as a person, but also like he's kind of a spoiled brat. So, yeah. But he also yeah. like, he has a good growth arc, right? Because it's... He has some growth arc. Well, because his yes. spoiled brat stuff is all him trying to... I mean, it works actually really well with this, right? It's him trying to earn the love of humans. Right. Because of his complicated family of origin. <laughs> Sound familiar right. to everyone. Yeah. And Instead then of it's. Instead therapy, he decided to become a demigod. Like, you know, yeah, whatever. But then he figures out that that's what's going on. And, like, it's like, oh no, there are bigger things. There are bigger concerns. There are more important things. And goes back and help, helps to yeah. restore instead of defeat to Fiti. Yeah. Yay, Moana. Indeed. And then our gospel reading for this episode is from John chapter 8, verses 31 through 36, where Jesus proclaims that the truth of the gospel will set us free. Freedom! <laughs> okay, but really, the gospel sets us free to care about others by wearing yes. masks. Jesus proclaims that the truth, masks save lives, of the gospel, love in community, will set us free to care for others by wearing masks. To show love in community. What? Yeah. In case you didn't already know explicitly that our podcast is pro-vaccination and pro-mass. And also pretty Lutheran. Freed from and freed for. Yay. Yes. Yep. And then in verse 32, we read, And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And this is sometimes true and sometimes not true, but it is definitely true about Captain Marvel because as Pace and I were talking about before this episode, the truth that she learns about her identity is in fact what sets her powers free, what gives her the space to actually fully live into her powers that she has. And then she uses them to care for others by protecting the earth from, you know, utter destruction and stuff. Yeah. Well done, Captain Marvel. And then in verse 33... The Judeans, who Jesus has just told us to, answer him, We are descendants of Abraham and have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean by saying you will be made free? To which I respond, Yes, you have never been slaves to anyone. And the Civil War was about states' rights. Mm -hmm. Like the rewriting of history. <laughs> that is like the yeah. thing that they are known for is like, we were slaves in Egypt and God saved us. And there's so. also, you know, the Babylonian exile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. John is a particular gospel. And at some point we need to do a deep dive into John, I suppose, because a lot of John is like talking to in groups and John trying to set up a thing to get people to choose a side. And so right. then it's very easy to interpret John in anti-Semitic and therefore harmful ways. Don't do that. Yeah. Anti-Semitism bad. Absolutely. And then in verse 35, we read, The slave does not have a permanent place in the household. The son has a place there forever. The daughter, on the other hand, no one seems to care about. But moving mm -hmm. on. One of the more obvious signs of slavery's, you know, being evil as an institution 
overarching in general is of course that it takes people and it turns them into things to be discarded to be bought or sold without an emotional impact on their enslaver Mm -hmm. Uh, and so in the movie mad max fury road the wives or basically enslaved of immortan joe write Mm -hmm. we are not things on the wall of their prison when they leave yeah oh that's a good one i just watched that for the first time like last year really good yeah i like how it sets up those conversations yeah and then in verse 36 we read so if the sun makes you free you will be free indeed and i just like to point out that it is way too easy with these texts today in particular i think to fall into the angry hebrew scriptures god versus Mm -hmm. the loving new testament jesus trope which is absolutely untrue uh, and also way oversimplifies everything and anti-semitic yes so let's avoid that in general it's not that jesus is the better and more loving son of a terrible and terrifying father like this is not tyler hoakland's character and tom hanks in road to perdition and it's not god that jesus is freeing us from then what is it Uh, sin which you know is our (laughs) own choice and yeah our own fault our own most grievous fault yeah yeah older liturgy yeah yes there's reformation readings and the day itself is as you've noticed a complicated day and so it takes extra care to make sure that we as christians are not being anti-semitic and and are in fact affirming the value and the chosenness and the specialness of the jewish people yeah and now for our funnest segment (laughs) let's make a muppets musical i don't know if you have any I did have one. I was thinking about our first reading and the idea of writing God's word onto our hearts. And that comment you made about the Queen Regina having hearts of other people made me think that I suppose that would be a lot less like messy with Muppets because <laughs> they're made out of fuzzy cloth. I'm sure they wouldn't actually do this on the Muppet show because it would be like weird and freak people out, but you could probably remove a Muppet's heart briefly in order to like write God's word onto it and mm-hmm. then return it and the Muppet would be fine. Like, cause the the Muppet's heart is not actually pumping blood through their system, right? Yeah. That's not how Muppets work. And so then I was trying to think of like how, what would that look like with Muppets? And like, I'm going to reject the concept of writing on a Muppet's heart with a Sharpie, like out of hand. And I suppose (laughs) that since the hearts are probably made out of cloth, that you'd like put a little patch on them. Or you could embroider. The Bible on it. Or yeah, or, or embroidery or like put a little heart on their heart. I kind of like that thought. So there are different options. I like that. I thought you were going with the Sesame, like going more the Sesame Street route and like the letters in Sesame Street. Yeah, I was thinking about that too. The the letter of the day is the letter of God's word on your heart today is. But that would require like taking everyone's heart, heart out every day and putting yeah, it back. And that it seems like a lot. Like, let's just do it once. That's fine. That's fair. That's fair. But also it could, you know, potentially be traumatizing to small children. So if they don't do that, that's also fine. Right. I will affirm once again that Luther is not simply Oscar the Grouch regarding anti-Semitism. But I do think it would be interesting to have like Stetler and Waldorf like take on Martin Luther and his anti-Semitism and like just like give that a bad review. Absolutely. I think all of the Muppets would be in on board with giving Martin Luther a bad review on that one. Yes, yes, for sure. Like, there could be a whole song and dance number, or 12. (laughs) Yes, I would like a whole song and dance number where the Muppets just, like, take down Martin Luther's 
anti-Semitism. Oh, goodness. That gives me the concept of the Muppets doing springtime for Hitler. From <laughs> the, and, wow, that could be epic. So That's hilarious. From the movie The Producers. It, I was trying to come up with the movie title. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Catch us next time when we'll discuss the nerdery connections to the scripture readings for All Saints Day with our special guest, Reverend Justin Thornburg. This podcast has been produced by us, Kay Roloff and Emily Ewing. For more fun, check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Nerds at Church or contact us at nerdsatchurch at gmail.com. Also, if you like what you've heard, rate us or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you want access to our uncut guest episodes and interviews, live Q&As, and more, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nerdsatchurch. It is cheaper than... Muppet Open Heart Surgery? It is definitely cheaper than Muppet Open Heart Surgery. I was going to say <laughs> it is cheaper than excessive rents and taxes... Yes, whether past too. or present. Indeed. Also, let us know on Facebook or Twitter who you would cast for Let's Make a Muppets Musical for this episode. As the ancient Christian said, Pax Vobiscum.